Hi everyone, I'm so excited for this week's Venture Boldly episode because we're going to learn what it takes to invest in the thriving emerging markets, or as we like to say, emerging tech cities around the world. Alan Taylor, the Managing Director of Endeavor Catalyst and one of the founding board members of Alter itself, will share lessons from investing in more than 160 emerging market ventures over the past decade, and that's including 17 unicorns. We'll hear how Alan thinks about these markets, how he's helped Endeavor companies raise more than $7 billion in equity capital, and how he sees the future of these inspiring emerging tech cities. Alan's mission-driven investment work focuses on scale-up companies in underserved and emerging markets. He's been an invaluable mentor to us here at Alter, and I can't wait for y'all to meet him. Welcome to Venture Boldly, an Alter podcast. Each week, we host inspiring conversations with game-changing entrepreneurs, investors, and operators, building and scaling the tech ecosystems of Latin America, South and Southeast Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. At Alter Global, we are a different kind of Silicon Valley venture capital firm. Beyond returns, we are guided by a belief in the power of tech unicorns rather than traditional foreign aid to completely transform nations. Our founders are role models in the making, catalyzing the next wave of ventures in their communities. Our entrepreneurs are not just building their companies, they're building their countries. Tell us about you. Could you give us an intro of your history at Endeavor, what you do now and what you did before? Sure. And, and Rita, I, I'm super happy to be here. I, I see some friends in the room. You guys are kind to join and some entrepreneurs. And, uh, you know, it, it's really my pleasure. I guess I also just have to embrace being called the, the OG. I turned 40 this year, so I guess I'm officially the, the OG. I've been doing emerging markets for really the last 15 years with Endeavor. But the very quick history is, you know, I am from California originally, Having lived and worked in Latin America for a long time, I, I do speak Spanish and, and a little bit of Portuguese, but, you know, I'm, I'm 100% gringo. I grew up here in the Sonoma Valley. I went to undergrad at Princeton. But when I was 19, I lived in Argentina uh, during my junior year of college, and that was my first real exposure to Latin America, kind of living and studying there. Uh, I went back and lived and worked there in Buenos Aires, but also spending time in Brazil and Mexico and some other markets um, right after college. And uh, eventually, through a couple of other steps there, I had a Fulbright in, in Germany. I lived in London. But I found my way to Endeavor in the global headquarters in New York in 2006. I joined, you know, 25, a couple years out of school, kind of thinking, hey, this will be my job for the next, you know, two or three years. Fifteen years later, I'm still here. <laughs> right? So we can talk a little bit about that journey and why I'm still here, because I think I've had four or five totally different cool and awesome jobs in that in that time. But really, when it comes down to it, it it's because the, the mission of, of what Endeavor is doing in the world and what groups like Alter are doing in the world just really has resonated with me. And it, it's where I've decided to build my career. <laughs> Alan, I feel like OG is such a huge stamp of honor, by the way. I, I think so many people around the world, both investors and entrepreneurs and talent, look up to you and to Endeavor and Endeavor Catalyst as this model of how the world could and should see these incredible places. It's fascinating to see how many misconceptions that many people have about these tech hubs around the world beyond Silicon Valley. In fact, you started at Endeavor back in 2006, 
Then you raised the first fund in 2012, the second in 2018, and the third in 2020. Could you share with us both your journey and how emerging tech city investing sentiment has shifted over these last 15 years? Yeah, well, so it has been a super, super exciting, you know, decade and a half to be working in, in these geographies. And maybe for context, I'll also share just a little bit of my own sort of journey, what I've worked on, and then how these markets have evolved, frankly, as De- Endeavor has also evolved and, and grown. And so, you know, Endeavor started way back in 97 in Latin America. Uh, first countries were Argentina and Chile, you know, expanded into Brazil, expanded into Mexico. When I joined in 06, we were only in six or seven markets, and most of them were in Latin America. And so Endeavor's own growth from being in six or seven countries back then to 40 countries today definitely shows, you know, that, that this is a global phenomenon, right? This idea of you can build billion dollar, even $10 billion, you know, imagine $100 billion companies from anywhere on the globe is 100% true today in 2021. I think that was a very contrarian thought in 97 when Endeavor started. And even in 06, when I joined, people did think that was a little bit crazy that you could do that. But over time, I think we've really shown that by building powerful networks centered around entrepreneurs, you can build networks of trust, you can build networks of mentorship, and really more and more, you can build networks of smart, connected capital that really will help to unleash the power of entrepreneurship in in these different markets. And so... You know, you mentioned some of the dates of Endeavor starting our first funds. I guess I would I'd get a running start on that a little bit by saying when I first started, Endeavor didn't have a fund. We really in earnest started helping companies raise capital kind of in a mentorship and support role back in 2009 and 10 and 11. Uh, and then we had kind of an experiment to try an emerging market or emerging tech cities uh, focused fund around 2012, you know, we raised like $6 million to get started and we invested in six companies. That little beta fund, that kind of fund we started out with as a, hey, will this work? You know, is this possible? It was invested into Brazil, Argentina, Mexico, Turkey. Turns out, you know, that one is essentially fully near the end of its life today, nine years later. It's a seven, almost eight X fund, right? Cash on cash kind of return, right? And so the idea that like, this isn't about foreign aid or trying to help poor countries, right? This is actually an incredible opportunity to invest in where the growth is going to come from over the next decade. And so we've continued to raise larger funds behind that same thesis of investing in Endeavor entrepreneurs. Uh, we can talk about what that means, but in really investing exclusively in what we call emerging and underserved markets. And now I love with Alter how we've also kind of embraced this concept of emerging tech cities, right? Because the other insight of how things have shifted over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years is to some degree, this is about national boundaries and, and countries when you're talking about regulation or currency or things like this. But in a whole bunch of dimensions, this is about emerging tech cities where businesses that work in Sao Paulo We'll work in Mexico City. We'll work in Jakarta. You know, we'll work in Manila. We'll work in Lagos, right? And it's a really interesting phenomenon to try to study. And so I'm, I'm happy to talk more about it. That's obviously one of the themes I'm, I'm very focused on and thinking a lot about these days. And I'm curious for any LPs that you approached 
for your first fund in 2012, for the ones who said no, for the ones who declined the opportunity to invest, have you reached back out to them or like, do you know what their sentiments are today? Has it changed? <laughs> yeah. So again, I think this is in that idea of it being sort of a contrarian thought that, that folks are catching up to. Reed Hoffman, who's the chairman of our fund and, and a big mentor of, of mine, he's the founder of LinkedIn. He has a great quote that says, you know, to be really good at venture capital, you only have to do two things. You have to be contrarian and then you have to be right. Right. And I, I've, I've heard other people say this, that like we want other people to agree with us eventually. Right. And so I think this this is totally true in, in the case of, you know, looking at emerging markets or believing you could build big companies and unicorns and things in emerging tech hubs. The folks we were talking to 10 years ago, lots of them said, that's crazy. That's never going to happen. Where will the exits be? You know, I, I don't believe it. A lot of those people actually are investors in our most recent fund that we raised last year, right? Because I think they've kind of come around to seeing, oh, wait, this, this really is possible. What would you say made that shift in thinking to realizing, wow, emerging market investing is possible and exciting? You mentioned earlier that notion of networks and trust and essentially individuals. Would you say it's more that or is it more like the market performance or venture success stories? What's what's the strongest lever here? Well, look, it's multifactorial. But if, if I were actually going to try to isolate, I think the key driver here, and this does get into kind of my theory of change of how I think you make the world better. It's the quality of entrepreneurs in all of these places around the world. Right. So we can talk about networks and we can talk about information asymmetries or shrinking and knowledge transfers happening faster and all this stuff. But it's the quality of the individuals, the human beings, you know, that are everywhere that really enables all of this to take place. Right. And that's this kind of notion of the remarkable individual theory of societal change, that there are amazing people everywhere. And so it's all about identifying them and then partnering with them, surrounding them with networks of, of peers, of mentors, of, of capital, you know, of knowledge, and then they will make, you know, all the difference. They'll essentially build big companies and in the process build their local entrepreneurial ecosystems, you know, build their city, build their country, right? I think that's, that's kind of the way I think about it. So it's founders above all else, kind of founders at the heart of the story. If your question also has a dimension of, you know, when did people start to believe <laughs> that this was viable from a venture capital perspective? That does have more to do with data and numbers and outcomes, right? And people sort of seeing that there is liquidity in markets, that you can build big companies, that there will be follow-on financing from some of the world's smartest global investors, and that you start to have some role models and some success stories of folks who've gone before. So hopping on to that, I know in late 2019, you had mentioned in your other podcast episode that you had just made Endeavor's 116th investment, which I believe was a venture in Egypt. And just barely a year later in 2020, that number jumped more than 30% to more than 150 investments. What was the impetus of this growth? Could you tell us a bit more about what was going on before and after this time? Yeah, look, so I guess maybe to put those numbers in context, we started as a fund, as I said, back in 2012. Uh, in the first couple of years, we made like five or 10 investments a year, right? That started to ramp up to the point where by 2017, we were making about 30 investments a year. 
I think we peaked uh, 2019. We made 35 investments. Last year, even pandemic, COVID, everything that happened, we still made 33 investments, right? So at this point, steady state, we're making like 30 or 40 investments at series A, B, or C into emerging market companies in Latin America, in the Middle East, in North Africa, in Turkey, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Southeast Asia. Uh, and we do a little bit of work as well in what we call kind of the underserved parts of, of Europe and the U.S., but if you want to look at like what's behind that ramp, right, from five or 10 deals a year to 30 or 40, um, it's essentially a few factors. But Endeavor's own growth and expansion. So we're supporting lots of great founders everywhere that we can now invest into. But really, it is the effects of markets like Brazil and Indonesia really catching, I think, catching fire in a way, right, of sort of like, the the ability where the founders were always there, the quality of the entrepreneurs was there, but now there is capital to meet that opportunity. And then the talent starts to become second generation entrepreneurial talent where folks who've worked in high growth companies, let's say like a Mercado Libre in Latin America or a 99 that got sold for a billion dollars or a Rappi that, you know, today is valued at, you know, three or four billion dollars and is probably going to, you know, do an IPO. You start to see folks coming out of those companies and starting new companies, and that kind of generational talent accelerates that flywheel of how things are happening in in these markets. And so one interesting thing we didn't emphasize is we're a co-investment fund. So it's not like we sat down and said, we want to do so many more deals in 2019 than ever before, right? We're sort of holding a mirror up to the market and to what's happening there and the markets are actually just maturing and developing quite a bit in terms of quality capital uh, flowing into these different business models. Oh, Alan, I love that notion of generational talent. And as you might remember from last week's podcast episode with Tiger Fong of Cargo in Indonesia, we were talking about the PayPal mafias or the breakfast clubs of Southeast Asia and other emerging tech cities around the world. And even we at Alter, we just love this notion of successful entrepreneurs reinvesting in and building their own nations. In fact, every time we meet prospective Alter entrepreneurs, we heavily look for signs that show this is their own ultimate selfless vision. And so, Alan, I'm curious if you've noticed whether these mafias, if you will, if they're always in the same sectors or industries, do you find that because of this trust, because of this network, it is easier for that talent to dive into other industries than the one that they started with? So that's a good question. Um, and I guess you could you could look at the, the PayPal mafia as, as an example, right, of some of the things that have come out of PayPal, if you think of like Max Levchin eventually building a firm, right, are still within financial services or fintech. Um, but lots of things that came out of PayPal, you know, Reid Hoffman starting LinkedIn, uh, are not, right? And and you see this all around the world. You know, I think you guys focused on some of the, the ones in Southeast Asia. A big one we see happening right now in the Middle East is, you know, from the company Kareem out of Dubai, which was acquired by Uber for $3.1 billion a couple of years ago. You now see lots of folks from Kareem setting up and starting new companies in the UAE, in Egypt, in Saudi Arabia, in Jordan, in Lebanon, sort of in, in Turkey, in Pakistan, right, in all these different markets. And initially, a lot of those have to do with what we would call smart cities, right, moving things and people around, supply chain, logistics, transportation. But eventually, I think the skill set around kind of building hypergrowth companies is applicable to other sectors as well. So if you think about building these entrepreneurial 
networks. I think mafias is actually a very accurate term, although funny side story. Endeavor opened in Italy a few years ago. And, you know, I got on the plane and flew there to give a big presentation with my slide deck called Building Entrepreneurial Mafias and realized, ooh, I don't know, for an Italian audience, maybe I need a different name to this presentation. But, yeah, that, those network effects, I think, will be largely concentrated in sectors and in geographies to start, uh, but ultimately will spread out into different sectors as well. Yeah, Alan, I'm just so excited. I feel like compared to foreign solutions or local giant incumbents or government solutions, there's this massive opportunity for these local tech entrepreneurs in emerging tech cities to find ways to make products unprecedentedly affordable and processes so much more efficient for the millions in their own nation and even their continent. So it's pretty neat and inspiring to see all these mafias. What's another word <laughs> that you would use other than the analogy of the PayPal mafia? I mean, the reason mafia sticks, right, is that people remember it and it resonates. You're essentially building tight, you know, sort of close-knit, trust-based networks, right? And and I wrote a piece earlier this year kind of on this idea that, like, in the era of investing via Zoom and ideas sort of flowing around the world very quickly and, and organizations like Endeavor and Alter, you know, being able to connect founders and entrepreneurs all across the globe, uh, that essentially geography matters less, right, to some degree, but globally distributed trust-based networks matter more, right? And that's really, I think, what we're talking about, although it's, it's not as catchy sounding as mafia. Well, that brings us back to what you mentioned earlier about access, a belief that we at Alter always say is talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. So hearing you talk about this notion of access is so fascinating to me because I know so much of our philosophy and theory of change here at Alter derives from conversations with you. And just wonderful to be here with you, Alan. A lot of long conversations, Jesse, and I had circa 2015, uh, you know, 16, 17, as this thing was all getting ramped up. <laughs> and Alan, just one more question about the macro view of investing in emerging tech cities. So last year, I think it was in September, October, Endeavor Catalyst raised its third fund, and you even raised $14 million more than expected, and it turned out to be the largest fund ever. How do you think this investing landscape will look like in 2025? In 2025? <laughs> yeah, five years. Oh, man. Just an arbitrary number. <laughs> 2030, if you'd like. I I, one of my favorite quotes here is, you know, it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. I'll give it a shot on sort of directionally where I think things are going, right? And bringing up the experience of fundraising last year, also, it, it's worth noting to, if there's emerging managers in the room or, or even entrepreneurs, you know, raising money through all kinds of crazy moments. We were raising our third fund last year. A couple of my teammates are also here in the room with us. We were supposed to have our final close on April the 10th of 2020. So if you do the math on that, you know, the world sort of fell apart in March. Uh, it was not exactly the perfect moment to have a, a final close of your fund. Fortunately, we'd had a, a, a first close and we were able to work with our RLPs that even though things were kind of crazy for March and April, by the time we got to sort of May and June, most of the folks we've been having conversations with could kind of re-engage and Rita, you're right. Our initial target was to raise sort of 100 to 120 million for this fund. And by the summer, when we did the final close, we, we raised 134. 
I think we've only seen that accelerate further since then. And what I mean is there's more capital sort of than ever before kind of coming into high growth technology on, on the private side in the form of direct investing by family offices, in the form of, you know, PE funds and crossover funds kind of coming downstream and investing earlier, but also in the form, I think, of more and more emerging managers raising funds. And so I think if you kind of squint at the future and try to say, hey, what could this look like in five or 10 years? My hope is more entrepreneurs, more high quality, smart, connected capital, you know, for those entrepreneurs and frankly, more emerging managers, more new funds, uh, particularly at the earlier stages that have specific focus on a geography or a sector or essentially to go back to the mafia idea, a network. Right. So working with, let's say, the best SaaS founders just in Brazil at the seed stage. Right. Like that could be a differentiated fund unto itself. Uh, I think we'll see more and more of that. We can get into this if you want, but I, you know, I, I joined the board last year of the Kauffman Fellows Program. And one of the reasons I did that is I'm really interested in this idea of how you get the next generation of emerging managers to start more funds and you kind of democratize access to the venture capital asset class. You know, for that to really happen, I think we should, you know, embrace innovations like rolling funds and equity crowdfunding, like you see these days on, on Republic. And I really think ultimately we should probably change the accredited investor laws and, you know, think about how software actually can come and kind of disrupt the venture asset class as a whole. But now I'm getting a little bit into the, you know, that's probably more than a couple of years away, but I'm excited to see all the innovation happening in this space. Oh, yeah, me too, Alan. I'm so excited to see what kind of new investors and investment models emerge here in the U.S. and abroad, where successful founders are able to increasingly invest back into the nation's own entrepreneurial ecosystem. I think with all this increased access to capital and expertise, both in their nation and abroad, this next generation of entrepreneurs in places like Nigeria, Bangladesh, Mexico, Egypt are only more empowered to transform their worlds in ways traditionally not possible. I think 10 years ago, most people would have looked at you cross-eyed if you said you wanted to use venture capital as a tool for economic development. But I think that's sounding less like a crazy idea today, right? And, and that's something I definitely, you know, I'm, I'm going to spend the next couple decades of my life continuing to work on. Excellent, Alan. I'm really glad to hear that because we definitely need you. So that perfectly fits into my next question. Some of my Alter friends know that I, I really like to understand things on the micro level. Could you tell me what were and are typical conversations like when you try to persuade an LP or an individual to invest in the Endeavor Catalyst Fund? Like, what was the one with Reed Hoffman like to join even as a board member during your nonprofit days? What questions do they ask? What are they always concerned about? And what strategy of yours typically actually works? Oh, good question. Okay, so look, I think of it a little bit like a Venn diagram of uh, in one circle, you've got people who understand emerging markets or maybe one market, right? You have the, 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 the most successful business person in Nigeria or in Indonesia, Right. And in this other circle over here, you have kind of the Silicon Valley crowd, right? The Reed Hoffman's of the world who really understand the power of entrepreneurship, how power laws work, how jobs get created, 
you know, how venture capital can really lead to, to, you know, creating the jobs of the future. But if we're being very honest, don't know a lot about a lot of these other geographies, right? And what I think we're trying to do is marry the two together and bring more people into the overlapping part in the center, right? So if you think about what the, what the conversations are like in Silicon Valley, and I didn't, I, you know, I grew up here, but I was away for a long time. I moved back in, in 2012 after spending, you know, six years in New York with Endeavor. And all my conversations in the beginning were about helping people who understood venture capital believe in the potential of Brazil or Mexico or Turkey or, you know, emerging markets. And there's a whole set of questions and, and kind of talking points around that where it's about trying to help people see the opportunity and see that, like, this is where the growth in the future is going to come from. And I think that's also a somewhat better understood model today, although I would still say largely underestimated. Right? I think people still vastly underestimate the growth that will come from emerging markets, whereas the other side of that Venn diagram, we spend a lot of time talking to business leaders in emerging markets about this concept of kind of like what got you here won't get you there. right? And that's like, hey, the next few decades are going to be about the digitization of your entire economy and technology is coming to disrupt not just commerce and everybody's heard of e-commerce now, but it's going to disrupt everything, right? Education, healthcare, transportation, agriculture, B2B sort of enterprise type services, all these things that happen offline are going to get digitized. And so depending on which group I'm talking to, I think there's a whole set of data points of trying to get people to meet in the middle and see what we see, which is a depth of understanding and the potential of the founders and the markets we work in. But then why venture capital and essentially investing time and energy and money and resources into these founders is the tool to do that. That reminds me of one of the lessons we learned here at Alter. In helping our entrepreneurs seek talent and investors, we found that people are indeed incredibly impressed by their backgrounds and traction. But to get people excited about the venture's potential, we realized that we needed to start changing the typical PR around these countries, which unfortunately, traditional media oftentimes portray in a very negative or doom and gloom kind of way. So for example, as you know, Alan, we have our Alter Fellowship Program, where young professionals from management consulting firms and established or startup companies like McKinsey, Google, Uber, BCG, etc., they spend six months at adventures abroad. And we found that what often inspires people to become a fellow is not just the impressive entrepreneur or venture, but also this totally transformed view of that nation. Like we often hear, wow, I had no idea that country X has such exciting tech applications or huge market growth potential or just a fascinating, wonderful place to experience life. So take, for example, Bangladesh, <laughs> which many of my ultra peers know I'm absolutely in love with. It's one of the most frequently sought after places to work by new ultra fellows because past ultra fellows and myself, have had such transformed, positive perspectives and experiences with it. And it reminds me of this conversation you and I had, Alan, about four months ago on how we can spread further positive, exciting sentiment around these nations, not just as emerging markets, but as actual places to be. Feel free to <laughs> add anything. It's just a thought. No, I, absolutely. Look, I think one of the most powerful things, if you spend significant time in other places is you just realize, you know, the global humanity of all of this, right? Like we are more alike, we are more similar than not, right? And I think particularly today, we're living in a weird moment 
of there's almost immediate awareness or access of the whole world because of the way social media operates. But there's not any real human kind of depth of understanding of what it means to be in, you know, use Dhaka, right? Use Bangladesh uh, if you've never been there, right? And so I consider it probably one of the most phenomenal parts of my job or the last 15 years of my life is having gotten to spend significant, meaningful time, you know, in about, about 40 or 50 of these, what we all are calling, you know, here emerging tech cities, right? Like these, these places that are really sort of special and therefore build real relationships with, with people in these cities, right? I, I think that's a very real thing. We can get into the whole debate of, of the moment of like, are we ever going to travel and go to these places again? Or are we just all going to live on Zoom? You know, and, and my view there is, of course, we're going to travel again. Of course, we're going to go places. You know, maybe we won't travel as much, right? I might not fly to New York for one meeting anymore. I might leverage Zoom or, you know, different technologies for that. But the power of, of travel and of being places and of interacting with all of your senses, right, and with people in those places, it, it, it is, it's not going to go away, right? It's, at the end of the day, it's a very intrinsic sort of human uh, need and desire. I bring up all my homework <laughs> is that I feel like I feel like all this work and this insight must have like helped form how you feel about emerging markets or it must have helped shape like how how you think about the theory of change like trying to understand all these different socioeconomic factors and people and societal change I don't have a, a neat and tidy answer on like how it all ties together but on some level all the work that I did related to photography was a deep teacher of, of, of sort of empathy and kind of human beings and humanity being at the center of all this. And that's obviously my lens on economic development and, and change, right? Is that it's not big institutions that are going to change things. It's not governments. It's not big corporations. It's people, right? It, it's particularly sort of passionate, dedicated, you know, committed people. And that's, you know, I view Endeavor today and the reason I still work here after all these years is it's a platform to connect with an amazing group of kind of curated people who are the agents of change in their societies and to try to help them. And wow, Alan, I feel like you you just know each time what I'm going to ask you next. But so you're focused really on helping to get the best out of people. And I know um, you had mentioned before in another podcast, this is your zone of genius, as the Kaufman Fellows would say. Could you share with the audience and especially like emerging investors here or aspiring entrepreneurs, like what is what does it mean to have a zone of genius and how do you identify that and what do you do with it? So zone of genius is not is not mine. It, it belongs to Kaufman Fellows, but I, I learned a lot about it about a decade ago. And I loved the idea, right? Because if you think about, you know, standard sort of advice you get as an entrepreneur, let's say on fundraising, right? And people are like, look, in this pitch, you got to make sure people understand like, why this? Why now? Why you? Right? Zone of genius is the why you? What about you or your team is sort of unique and special and differentiated in a way that you're the one to solve this problem? And zone of genius is trying to apply that framework to your life, right? Of like, you know, what set of experiences and relationships and opinions and knowledge makes me uniquely positioned to do whatever I'm going to do, right? And that can be work on a particular 
topic or can be a particular type of work. But I think Coffin Fellows believes a lot that if you find that, like where you actually are the most effective in a flow state the most often, right, and really able to get the most out of yourself, you know, you'll have the biggest impact, right? And, and I'm really interested in that concept because no matter how powerful and wealthy and whatever you get, you only get 168 hours in a week. That's true for everybody. Like that's the big limiter. And so I think trying to figure out over time, like how to spend those, and you got to sleep some of those hours, right? So of the ones you're awake, how do you spend them? How do you get the most leverage out of them? And how do you have the biggest impact? And the more time you can spend doing the things you're the best at and that are uniquely you, you know, kind of being in that quote zone of genius, I think the better you'll do and the happier you'll be. Love that, Alan. Um, I, I'm definitely going to be sharing that term zone of genius with my friends and my teammates. It's, it's definitely a slightly different perspective of how we think about flow states. Um, so my last question for you before I share audience questions is in your last 15 years at Endeavor, what kind of skill sets have you had to evolve and adapt over time as investing in these emerging tech cities have also changed? Like what kind of skill sets are most necessary these days for seeking and investing in entrepreneurs around the world? That's a good question. It's one that I, I, I haven't been asked in exactly that way. So reflecting on it, certainly these markets are more interconnected than they ever were before. And information and relationships move and travel faster. And again, I don't have a neutral vantage point in this, right? Because my own sort of network has grown and expanded over time. I really do believe a lot in kind of the, the comp in compounding when it comes to people, relationships and networks as well, right? Compounding is not just for interest and, and finance. And so I think, you know, your own ability to do more really goes up over time as you, as you build those networks. But in terms of skill sets, I guess I would say, Self-awareness <laughs> and humility are probably some of the most important ones for me of like the last five or 10 years. You know, I, I never lacked self-confidence, right? In my 20s, when I was 18, I knew everything. In my 20s, I, you know, was going to conquer the world. I think probably deeper self-awareness, humility and empathy uh, have made me a better leader and, and a better investor in the last decade, that's probably just personal journey more than it is the markets changing to address the market change dynamic. You know, folks who can kind of connect the dots faster and make links uh, and understand incentives and understand sort of human nature and motivations and really step back and ask, like, you know, why would this person want to connect with this person and how do I make it a win win for both of them? That's kind of a superpower, I think, as the world gets more and more connected and we all get busier and busier and there's more demands on our time, you know, sort of thoughtful curation of human relationships, I think, is a really important skill set. And then maybe there's one more that I think Endeavor and Alter are both world class at, but this, that's this idea of cultivating serendipity, which I just love conceptually, right? I think there's a, there's a heck of a lot of luck and serendipity involved in all of this in life. And so people who can cultivate that, I think it's a very powerful thing. Alan, I've just loved speaking with you. I mean, in just the last nearly one hour, I can feel, I can palpably feel this hyper-focus on the individual. Like what it means to be an individual in these emerging markets, an individual in Silicon Valley, and how each of us as individuals can all come together 
to build this trust in this ever-growing network around the world. And ultimately, one individual is able to have huge, unprecedented access to so many opportunities. Look, it's it's all about people. Like, I really do think that's true. And, you know, we, we all see things through our own lens, but when it comes back down to it, that's all we're doing here. Right? It's all about people helping people try to make the world a better place. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alan. So now I'm going to share some of the questions from our audience in Clubhouse. Ready? Of course. Let's do it. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. Thanks for having me on your formal interview portion. And yeah, let's talk to some of the folks in the room. Great. Well, first up, we have Tiger Fong, who's actually an alter entrepreneur himself. Um, he's the co-founder and CEO of Cargo Technologies in Jakarta. Last week, he was our first Venture Boldly podcast guest ever. And this week, he was actually just named an Endeavor entrepreneur as well. I know. Congrats. I was super excited to hear that news. Very happy to have you in the, in the Endeavor family. So, Alan, Tiger wants to know, A, how do you feel about emerging market ventures that want to create global business models. Like people always liken cargo technologies to the Uber of Southeast Asia, but they are so much more than that. And B, do you think entrepreneurs are born or made? Sure. No, thanks for the question. And Tiger, it's uh, it, it's great to, to connect with you here. Okay. So on the last one, are entrepreneurs born or made? Yes. <laughs> and what I mean is, you know, I actually think both. I think there are there is such a thing as a natural born entrepreneur where you go back and interview, you know, people who lived on their street when they were three years old and they say they were starting their first business. Right. But I also think there are phenomenal entrepreneurs that essentially it is much more about uh, nurture right, than nature. And it's about the environments they've been in and the folks they've been exposed to. And they can learn to be really phenomenal entrepreneurs. And I think. Really, what this comes down to is it's almost like asking a question about leadership of like, are true leaders born or made? And I think the answer to that is also yes. Right? I think there is a type of leader that is this intrinsic, natural born. You could just, you know, if you met them when they were a teenager, you just knew they were going to be the leader of something someday. Uh, and then there are other people. And again, this is a little bit generalizing, but those ones those leaders tend to be sort of the gregarious, outgoing, you know, potentially natural extrovert type leaders. But there are phenomenal leaders, if you read Good to Great, and you study leadership, who are are not, you know, the one that stands out in the classroom at age 10 at all, but through sort of careful, and again, back to the idea of self-awareness, kind of self-development, become phenomenal leaders. And so I actually think that's true for entrepreneurs. I think there is, there are certain innate qualities people can be born with that make them, you know, potentially good entrepreneurs. But then there are others who really learn along the way. This idea of like some business models will be global, some business models will be local or regional. And more and more, I actually have this funny feeling that more things will be local than the other way around. Right. And so you know, the famous example here is, you know, you get an entrepreneur from, I don't know, pick a country, Ecuador, pitching you why they want to be the Google of Ecuador, right? And something feels off about that. And you're like, wait a second, I'm pretty sure the Google of Ecuador is going to be Google, right? And so <laughs> there are there are certain businesses where because of network effects and because of asset light or basically asset zero, like there are clear, clear models that, you know, a global winner 
will likely succeed globally, barring any type of, you know, crazy prohibition or, or, or regulation, right? And so that's the whole idea, like Google is the global search engine, except in China where it's not, right? And so I think there are categories of businesses that are going to be built that way that traditionally a lot of the successful leaders have come from Silicon Valley. I have a hypothesis, though, that in the future, even some of those globally successful businesses could come from anywhere, right? And this is sort of the like Spotify comes out of Sweden and becomes the leading music streaming business in in much of the world, you know, and I, I think we'll probably see more and more of that. But when you get down to it and you kind of break down even our own portfolio at Endeavor Catalyst, right, we've made about 170 investments, about 75, almost 80% of them are essentially local or regional leaders in business models that we see repeated around the world, but that are fundamentally hard to win as a global player, right? And Tiger, I think your Uber analogy is a great one, right? Uber definitely believed and a lot of people believed this is a global business, economies of scale, we're going to go conquer the world and launch, you know, 500 cities at once or whatever the vision was. And it turned out it actually was a very local business in a whole bunch of important ways. And I think if you look at the waves of how technology comes to emerging markets, right, and this is sort of my own theory that like consumer and retail gets disrupted first, then it disrupts all the major industries like financial services, healthcare, education, transportation, agriculture, et cetera. And then kind of the third wave is the digitization of the SME economy or sort of disrupting, you know, mom and pops and small businesses and offline markets and things like that. Most of those things are going to be local businesses, right? And so I, I do think it gets me excited when I think about the next decade, because I think most of the bigger business opportunities are going to be better addressed by local entrepreneurs than, you know, global folks flying in from elsewhere. Next, we have a question from Siddharth, who would like to know, what is it that inspires you about the power of emerging markets? I think at the end of the day, I am inspired by the dynamic pace of change and the future growth opportunity, right? So this this idea that like, if you look at what's been able to happen, let's say in China, and I'm not a China expert, right? But if you look at the, the hundreds of millions of people who have sort of been lifted up out of poverty over the last few decades by the development of that economy, I really believe emerging markets are the next China, right? Like viewed collectively as a whole, the growth over the next 10, 20, 30 years is going to be phenomenal. And the impact that'll have on just sort of like living conditions for people everywhere, I think is tremendous. Now that being said, it will not necessarily be equally distributed or fair or even in any way. And so trying to figure out how do you also address wealth inequality as the markets grow, I think is a very hard, exciting, challenging problem to try to work on. But mostly I think, Sid, I'm just, I'm inspired by the idea that if we play the long-term game and we sort of say like, hey, what can we do between now and I don't know, 2050, right? 30 years from now. I think we can have a tremendous impact on the world by focusing on these economies and, and these cities and these places. And that is a quote that I, you know, do quote from time to time that has had a big impact on me. But I heard it from Jason Green as one of Endeavor's board members and mentors. And I think it, it's been repeated in different circles. But, you know, that human beings tend to 
overestimate what they can do in a year, but underestimate what they can do in a decade. And I find that to be so true. If I look back at the last decade of, you know, what we've built with Endeavor and Catalyst, like we're not even quite a decade old with the fund. But when we were starting, we were literally saying, hey, what if we could get an emerging market company to become a billion dollar business? Right. And the term unicorn didn't exist yet. Aileen Lee hadn't coined it, but that was our goal. Right. Could we make one company in our whole portfolio become a billion dollar company today? You know, I was just reviewing some of the new presentations from our team. We have 20 billion dollar companies out of the emerging markets, you know, including 17 unicorns. And I'm like, that's crazy to think about. Right. If I had 10 years ago thought, oh, we're going to have 17 unicorns in the Endeavor <laughs> Catalyst portfolio. I never would have believed it, right? So I really do think we underestimate what we can do on these longer time horizons. And so given that, I get very excited about, you know, the amount of change that can come to a market like Mexico City, like Sao Paulo, like Jakarta, like Dhaka, you know, Cairo, you pick, right? I think there's there's a few dozen cities that I'm I'm quite excited about in that way. And Sid, you're, you're getting to talk to, to men and women every day who are actually building these businesses. And I think there's also a new, a new thing that's happened, which is I think we're moving beyond the traditional concept of this is for profit and this is nonprofit. And the number of for profit businesses led by really sort of mission driven entrepreneurs and leaders is just is going up and up and up. And so I think this idea of people want a higher purpose behind what they're working on every day, behind the business they're building or, or working at, is also going to be a big contributor to how this plays out over the next couple decades. All right, Alan, our next question is from Luan, whom I actually met in San Francisco before the pandemic, alongside other Silicon Valley-based venture capitalists operating in emerging tech cities. Luam and Kendrick called our group the Elsewhere VC folks, <laughs> which I thought was a very clever name. Um, so anyway, Luam would like to know, how you think about the upcoming evolution of tech hubs outside of Silicon Valley? What will it take to build them to be recognized for their own incredible worth on the global stage? Yeah, super, super good question. And I would characterize it this way, right? If we think of stages of development of these entrepreneurial ecosystems, I'll start by sort of saying, like, look, I've helped a lot of companies raise money over time. And fundraising is obviously a, a major part of our work. Uh, in addition to investing in companies, is, is helping bring good investors to these markets. But fundraising is not the goal, <laughs> right? And so to the degree, you know, there is starting to be more capital flowing into a market, let's say, like Nigeria, I really still think we're in the kind of early innings of building that entrepreneurial ecosystem. You know, milestones like Paystack getting acquired, you know, having a successful exit is a fantastic milestone, you know, Flutterwave becoming the first kind of company valued at a, a billion dollars from this new generation, obviously had InterSwitch before, but those are important milestones. But I think we're still kind of got a long way to go in kind of building that as an entrepreneurial ecosystem and hub before I would think about going out to other hubs. And I'll, I'll, I'll kind of zoom around a little bit and, and talk about Brazil as an example, right? So in Brazil, I think you're much further along you have, by anybody's estimate, you know, 15 to 25 unicorn companies. You've had several high-profile exits. You have a few publicly listed businesses in the U.S., and you truly have second-generation founders kind of coming out of companies and starting businesses. So, for example, our team at Endeavor Brazil now is saying, hey, look, Sao Paulo is super important. we got to keep building it. 
but we have to also build the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Rio, in Recife, in Curitiba, in Porto Alegre, in Florianopolis, in Joinville, right? Like we have to really think about all these other places. And, you know, our own portfolio now, we've invested in, I think, 33 or 34 companies in Brazil. About half of those are in Sao Paulo, but about half are in all these other cities, right? And I think that's kind of the stage that Brazil is at today and its entrepreneurial kind of hub development. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm not an Africa specialist, but I would say for the next one, two, three years, you'll probably continue to see concentration in Nairobi, Lagos, Joburg, Cape Town. And only after you've had kind of a, a higher density of success stories and exits and outcomes you start to see that popping up in, in other cities. I, I don't know if there's a right or a wrong to that. It's just my hypothesis of, I think, how it kind of plays out. My view here is that we are at a little bit of a high watermark on funding flowing to certain emerging markets, right? If, if we look at Indonesia right now, or even at Brazil right now, it's probably the highest moment I've ever seen it at or that it's ever been at. I do think venture capital is cyclical, and so there will be some ups and downs and some bumps in this over the coming decade. I think we expect that. I think those of us who are kind of long-term committed to these geographies know that, right? And know that at some point, some of the Silicon Valley guys will run away from Latin America, even though right now they're all very, very interested, right? And so I think that's where it comes back to that kind of, for both entrepreneurs and investors kind of stick to it and, and, and play for the long term in the markets that you believe in and that you have the most sort of home field advantage in, in a way. Okay, Alan, our second to last question is from Jolyn, who I met in our early clubhouse days of fall 2020. She heads up Latin SF and is curious to know how you think about San Francisco's and Silicon Valley's future on the world stage, especially given what feels like a mass exodus of tech talent and investors from the Valley during the pandemic. Sure. Well, here, I'll comment quickly on the San Francisco question, but I don't have any particular expertise. Uh, I'd, I'd love to learn more about what you were doing with sort of San Francisco to the world. Maybe we can follow up on that. But Silicon Valley for several decades has been kind of the lighthouse for innovation, entrepreneurship, venture capital. I think it'll continue to play a pretty important role in that regard um, because there is such a high density of people here who understand high scale businesses and, and, you know, what Reid Hoffman calls blitz scaling. I think for people who've really truly been inside those types of companies and understand how it works, it's in the small, like tens of thousands on the planet, right? And they, and they live in China and India and, you know, increasingly in some of these cities we've been talking about around the world, but a whole bunch of them live in Northern California, right? And so I think that'll continue to be, you know, a role that this region plays with the rest of the world. Although I'll make one statement without getting into too many California politics. We got some stuff we have to sort out as well, right? So I don't actually believe Twitter that everybody's moving to Miami, but I do think San Francisco has some things to to figure out in, in this area in terms of taking care of, you know, the people and the place that, that we live in addition to kind of helping uh, the rest of the world. To your second question on Latin America, you know, I did live in Argentina for a couple of years. Some of my friends jokingly call me Gringo. So I'm a big fan of of the tech talent and the entrepreneurial talent coming out of Buenos Aires. I would sort of stack rank Latin America in the following way from a potential for global venture capital and kind of high growth businesses. Brazil is the biggest market. Brazil is happening. Mexico is having a little bit of a moment. Uh, both, you know, the FA and Monterrey 
with some teams getting kind of discovered by Silicon Valley investors. I think that will continue. So I think you've seen Excel, Index, Andreessen, uh, Homebrew, you know, all kinds of folks investing in Mexico for the first time uh, in the last just three months. And I think we'll see more of that. I think that's a good thing. And so I kind of think of it as Brazil, Mexico, and then entrepreneurs from Argentina and Colombia. That's kind of my top four. But I'm a big believer in this kind of, you know, entrepreneurial talent is everywhere. You know, so Endeavor works in Uruguay, in Chile, in Peru, in Ecuador. And I think we could see folks coming from from those places as well. Thank you. All right. I have one last question from Peter, and then I'm going to ask you a really important question at the very end. So Peter wants to know how you feel about the latest cohort of YC entrepreneurs or Y Combinator entrepreneurs, where such a significant share were from outside the U.S. So, look, I think I remember going to Demo Day, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago, and essentially none of the companies were from anywhere outside the United States. Right. I, I saw a stat on the most recent class that this YC class, I think, is the first one where more than 50 percent of the founders are from outside the United States. I think that is net positive, right? I think that's accretive to this mission we're all on of trying to bring entrepreneurship everywhere. Like the folks at YC have a ton of knowledge, expertise, you know, kind of know-how on some of the early stages of, of building a startup. And, you know, I think from an Endeavor perspective, we are encouraging YC to do more in more geographies. On the capital raising in particular, uh, I do think that something has happened where, YC's become a little bit of a, of a brand name that's almost a beacon that attracts capital in and then does focus it on, you know, a small set of companies relative to the number that exist in those markets, right? And so my hope in how that plays out is, you know, if you get a few positive examples there and then you get a few positive examples coming from, let's say, Alter, you know, backing companies at the later stages as companies scale, Endeavor backing companies, what will ultimately happen is that capital will go to more entrepreneurs in each of the markets. But I get that in this kind of stage of the development, you know, there's going to be five, seven, 10 companies from country X in the YC batch, and they're going to get a lot more attention just because of literally the way YC is able to kind of cast that wide net and then concentrate the capital in on a few opportunities. But my view there is like it's better that those include companies from the rest of the world than when they were doing it, you know, pretty much all for American or California based founders. Right. So is it imperfect? Yes. It's sort of the, the implication of your question. But I view it as kind of a stage of development to get us, you know, to a, a better place eventually. All right, Alan, my very, very, very last question. <laughs> You're such a trooper for having put up with me for, for more than an hour now. Uh, I'm curious if you could share with the audience why someone should want to become an Endeavor entrepreneur. Like, what's this incredible value add that you and your team offer to founders around the world? Oh, well, here, I'll, I'll, I'll give it the 20-second commercial, right? And, and I should have said this in, in more detail. Endeavor works with the best entrepreneurs in emerging and underserved markets at the scale-up stage, right? So it's not as early as Alter, not as early as YC, but, you know, at the kind of next stage, which in venture terms is usually around Series A, Series B, Right. We tend to get involved in helping with access to capital, access to markets and access to talent and building this sort of global peer network of, of founders. So, you know, we've been around 23 years today, support about 2000 emerging market founders with a full time team of 550 people 
on the ground in 65 cities in more than 40 countries. So there's your Endeavor commercial uh, that we, we can include. But in all seriousness, it's all locally owned and operated from the ground up. So if you're a founder in Nigeria, in the Philippines, in Brazil, uh, in Turkey, in Bulgaria, in any of these places, you know, I'd encourage you to get in touch with the local team in, in your country or city to consider being part of the Endeavor Network. Amazing. Alan, thank you so much for your time today. Please have a wonderful rest of the day with your family. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Venture Boldly. We'll be back soon, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. To learn more about our ventures or meet our team, you can visit our website at alter.bc. That's A-L-T-E-R dot B-C. We'll catch you next time on Venture Boldly, an Alter podcast.